Hi everyone, my name is Thiago and I'm a graduate student at Princeton University and I'm your host. The Highlights is a sister podcast to Princeton Insights in collaboration with the Daily Princetonian. Insights is a newsletter written by Princeton undergrads, grad students and postdocs. We write about the most exciting and groundbreaking research being conducted here at Princeton in the form of short, fun and easy-to-read reviews. We cover a range of topics including psychology, neuroscience, biology, computer science, and physics, to name a few. Make sure to check out our website at insights.princeton.edu. Right now, I'll have the pleasure to receive my fellow graduate student Rebecca Rashford as a co-host. Say hi, Rebecca. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to co-host this first episode of The Highlights with Chiago. Undergrad Ashley Chang and I wrote a review for Princeton Insights about the paper we're discussing today, written by Dr. Nicole Templeman and others from Dr. Colleen Murphy's lab. Before we hear from Dr. Templeman, Tiago will introduce her to you. Thanks, Rebecca. Dr. Templeman received her bachelor's from Mount Allison University, her master's from McMaster University, and her PhD from the University of British Columbia in 2015. Until last year, she worked with Dr. Colleen Murphy from Princeton University, studying signaling pathways and molecular mechanisms that regulate reproductive aging in C. elegans. If you didn't understand what I just said, don't worry. We'll spend the next couple minutes basically unfolding that sentence. Now, before I get to it, there's a new and exciting development to that CV. In 2020, Dr. Templeman started her own lab at the biology department of University of Victoria in Canada, and also is holding a Canada Research Chair in Cell Biology. Without further ado, here's Dr. Templeman. Dr. Templeman, it's a great pleasure to receive you. Thank you so much for joining us today. And congratulations for such an exciting career advance. Oh, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So we usually only think about the positive aspects of becoming a professor, but I'm sure there are many obstacles as well. So especially for starting a lab in the middle of the pandemic, How's this transition going for you? I would say that it's probably a difficult transition at the best of times, and maybe this isn't the best of times. So, you know, I am finding my way just like we all are. There's been some setbacks in terms of things like having some students who haven't been able to get visas to come to Canada because of pandemic restrictions and that sort of thing. So it's just moving slowly, but hopefully it'll get there. Yeah, I come from Brazil and I have some friends that are having a lot of trouble with visa as well. And also, I feel that there are a lot of differences in the way we do science in Brazil compared to here in the U.S. Do you think there are many significant differences in the way people do research in Canada compared to the U.S.? One of the main differences that I can think of is in terms of how funding works a little bit in Canada. I guess an easy way to think about it is Canada's system is maybe slightly more socialist than the America's, America's system in terms of research funding is a little bit more widely distributed. So it's nicer for being a younger PI um, starting out where I don't have to have built up this big repertoire of previous experiments before hopefully I, I start to get some funding. That said, there is definitely perks to spending time doing research in the United States and having collaborative in the United States because there's a lot more resources there. So Princeton had way more resources than um, some places that I might have gone here.
We're going to talk today about your last paper, Crab Non-Autonomously Controls Reproductive Aging Through Hedgehog Patched Signaling, published in Developmental Cell. So congratulations again for the publication. And let's start from the bigger picture. What is exactly reproductive aging? Aging is sort of characterized by cell and tissue deterioration, which kind of leads to broader changes. So one of these broader changes is a decline in the female reproductive capacity. So this is actually one of the earliest signs of aging, and we use the term reproductive aging to mean this in the paper. And one of the things to know about reproductive aging is it, it takes place a lot earlier than is widely appreciated. So if it's just a matter of cell deterioration, we can assume that it happens in all species, right? Or are there species where there is no reproductive aging? I would say that it is a fairly understudied thing. So I don't know that I would assume broadly that it happens in all species. It's kind of interesting because humans, for example, have a, a fairly long post-reproductive lifespan and not all species have that. But some of that, of course, probably has to do with the fact that in the wild, you don't get to live out your, your full lifespan in terms of some of these species um, interacting in their natural habitats. Uh, so what I can say is that humans certainly have this um, decline in oocyte quality. Mice, which is a very common model for studying mammalian biology, also show a decline in oocyte quality. And then the organism which we use in this paper, the tiny nematode C. elegans, also show a decline in oocyte quality and sort of a post-reproductive lifespan. Nematodes are the roundworms, of which Cenorhabditis elegans is the most well-studied species. C. elegans is widely used as a model species because of the reproducibility of its development and the availability of genetic mutants. They are similar to humans in many physiological processes. I see. Yeah, that's cool. It's nice that we can see this phenomenon in many different species. Uh, you mentioned that the reproductive aging is associated with many other physiological processes. For example, that there is a sort of correlation of the fertility span and life expectancy. So do we know how to explain that correlation? Um, so I think that we have ideas about how to explain that correlation. One thing we know is that the germline and other tissues in the body, the, the somatic tissues. Germline is a set of cells that early in development separate from the rest and that maintain the capacity to differentiate into gametes. These are the cells that can contribute genetic material to the next generation. Somatic tissues are the tissues that cannot differentiate into gametes, which in humans are everything except for tissues in the testes and ovaries. Basically, there's a lot of communication that happens between these systems. Nothing is happening in isolation. So we know that these systems are very integrated. And we also know that if you come a bit from sort of a theoretical standpoint, it makes sense that an organism would be able to, for example, if it's a stressful condition, the organism would be able to delay reproduction um, to a time when potentially it's less stressful. Um, and in order to be able to do that, they would also have to be able to live a little bit longer so that they can then actually reproduce when it's less stressful. So it, it theoretically makes sense that these two things would be tied together.
In this paper, you talk a lot about the transforming growth factor signaling pathway. So could you briefly explain what a signaling pathway is and what this particular signaling pathway has to do with reproductive aging? A signaling pathway is sort of a cascade of different proteins interacting within a cell that leads to a series of responses. So this is what allows cells to, I guess, interact with each other. So there was one cell might send a signal, which would be some sort of a protein, and it travels and interacts with a receptor and then leads to a downstream cascade that results in a bunch of changes within the cell. So in your paper, you talked about a lot of different signaling pathways. How do those components interact with one another? What we presume might be happening is, so if we go at it from the point of CREB, which is a transcription factor. A transcription factor is a protein that binds to DNA and regulates gene expression by promoting or suppressing the making of RNA from the DNA. Um, for CREB to be active, it both needs to be moving into the nucleus. So there are different ways in which it can be sort of turned on and off to move it into the nucleus. And then it also needs to form complexes with other proteins to lead to transcriptional responses. So again, things that cause its partner proteins to move in and out of the nucleus are also going to affect CREB activity. Um, so we don't know exactly how TGF-beta signaling TGF-beta signaling describes a series of biological processes in the body of an organism that helps with cellular functions such as growth, differentiation, and death. It is found all over the body, not just in one region. So we don't know exactly how TGF-beta signaling is leading to enhanced or increased activity of CREB, but presumably it's through one of these ways, by causing it to move into the nucleus or causing its partner proteins to move in there with it. And then in terms of sort of the downstream effect, which is changed expression of um, WRT or WART10. WRT10 could be referring to either a gene or a protein found in the skin and intestinal cells of C. elegans. It is required for normal healthy growth and locomotion. What we're assuming is because CREB is a transcription factor, this leads to transcriptional changes. And so that is one of the targets of CREB. One of, I think, my favorite aspects about biological research is that you can use all these knockdown approaches to be able to kind of connect the dots of what affects what. So you were using the knockdown of CREB and then the knockdown of the gene that's for the TGF and then the knockdown for the gene for WIRT. Just by seeing the loss of function and then the rescue, it's always so cool. A lot of what Rebecca's talking about are called epistasis experiments. So that's kind of a way of looking at how gene interactions affect a phenotypic outcome. By doing different combinations of gene knockdowns, you can kind of see if one of those genes relies on the other. Phenotypic outcomes are explicitly observable characteristics or traits as a result of the interaction of the genetic code and environmental factors. With C. elegans, it's really fun to do these sorts of experiments because it's fairly easy. So basically, you can have a mutant worm, and so that already has loss of functions. And then you can do these different gene knockdowns by feeding them bacteria that are expressing a double-stranded RNA against the gene of interest. 
Double-stranded RNA is a structure of genetic code that is usually adopted by viruses that allows for the viral genes to be used and integrated into another organism. Because the elegans eat bacteria, you can have the bacteria expressing the plasmid which you want it to be expressing. You're putting them on these different bacteria and that leads to loss of function of a particular gene. A pretty awesome way to be able to work with this organism. So now we can move into an overall discussion of what people can understand about reproductive aging in terms of your paper. So working with model organisms, there's always that risk of the systems being a little bit different to humans. So do you think that this study needs to be replicated in mice or another organism for translational experiences? Yes, I, I would agree with you that worms are a very long way from humans, and I certainly wouldn't want to start leaping into doing things like drug targets and stuff from this work. So in terms of how you could expand the interpretation of the study beyond just the elegans, uh, what I would think is that it's, it's likely that there are sort of similar intertissue signaling systems in um, mammals and, and other organisms that are allowing communication between um, metabolic tissues, such as in this case, the hypodermis of the worm um, and the reproductive system. Metabolic tissues are a set of specific cells, a tissue, whose collective function is to carry out chemical processes to create energy for the organ and or organism. There's these lines of communication that allow a worm or any other organism to change the rate of their reproductive aging and their lifespan um, sort of working cooperatively with other tissues. So we don't know if these specific signaling components that we identify in C. elegans are also involved in playing that same sort of biological role in vertebrates, um, but it's, it's possible, but it would definitely require more research. Okay, so... Do you think that there is any positive aspect to the process of reproductive decline, or do you think that it's an overall deleterious and negative process? I really can't think of any good aspects of reproductive aging or aging in general. That said, I, I think it's important to remember that these signaling pathways that we're talking about are not just affecting reproductive aging. For example, accelerating the rate of age-related deterioration can be kind of a flip side of being something that's involved in promoting growth and development. So for these Krebs mutants, and especially the TGF-beta mutants, they do have delayed reproductive aging, but they're also abnormally small. Um, so you can think of that as kind of a drawback to having mutations in these, in these signaling components. Another thing is that this paper focuses a lot on Krebs acting in the hypodermis to have these cool effects on reproductive aging. But Krebs is also really well known to be needed in the neurons for long-term memory formation. So these Krebs mutants, um, they might have delayed reproductive aging, but they can't form lasting memories. So I don't think that's a trade-off I'd be willing to make. Yeah, definitely. Me neither. Um, so I know that this is highly speculative and feel free to say it's impossible to actually answer this question. But can you guess how these results could, in principle, help delay reproductive aging in the future, meaning how exactly can these findings be used to tackle aging and lifespan in general? And I think you already touched on it, but if you want to expand a little bit more. 
nothing is happening in isolation. And I, I think developing an understanding of how these intracellular signaling systems are working and what their downstream effects are is going to be a really big step in terms of understanding what we can do to have direct effects on things such as reproductive aging. Especially if, if you're thinking that some of these things are acting in response to sort of changes in, in nutrient intake, then it's possible that there could be some things that we could do, like changing our diets such that we're not stimulating certain of these pathways. But I would say that's, that's very speculative at this point. We don't know. So the last question is basically a question about next steps. For both the Murphy lab and your own lab, what are your plans and what are their plans following up this article? I don't believe the Murphy lab is directly following down this article. They are doing a lot of different, uh, very cool stuff. In terms of following up this article, there's maybe a little bit more that I would be interested in doing in my lab to kind of maybe better define the physiological context of, of when this is actually having an effect. And so we think it might be involved in responses to changes in nutrient conditions, but we don't actually know. So it's possible that I might pursue this or that the Murphy lab might pursue this. Both the Murphy lab and my lab are definitely still interested in looking at reproductive aging, but we might go in kind of different directions because in my lab we're going to start doing some mouse work looking a little bit more directly at a mammalian model and kind of seeing if some of these ideas um, carry through and then in terms of otherwise my own step I would say that it mostly relates to getting my lab off the ground in the first place so it's <laughs> uh, kind of a whole different learning experience but it, it'll be fun to see where it goes. Thank you very much for coming here and for talking to us. It's really nice to talk with the first author. But yeah, thank you so much. And I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Yeah, it was great. It's always fun to talk about your work with people. So I, I enjoyed it a lot. This episode of The Highlights was written by Thiago Tarrafarela and Rebecca Rushford. It was produced by Isabel Rodriguez under the 144th Managing Board of the Daily Princetonian. For more podcasts and other digital media from the Prince, visit www.dailyprincetonian.com. Many thanks to Dr. Nicole Templeman for speaking with us. To read more about Dr. Templeman's work, check out the Princeton Insights article covering her research, which can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening, and until next time!